Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Kat Tully. Kat Tully is the founder of the School of International Futures, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary in 2022. She has extensive experience as a practitioner, helping governments, civil society and businesses become more strategic, effective and better prepared for the future. She is motivated by a focus on social justice and the importance of multi-stakeholder approaches to the challenges of the 21st century world. Before setting up the school, Kat worked as a strategy and policy advisor to the UK government under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. She has also worked in strategy and international relations across the not-for-profit and business sectors. Welcome to FuturePod, Kat. Hi, Peter. So lovely to be with you and your audience. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks, Kat. So first question is the, the story question. So what is the Kat Tully story? How did you end up being a member of the Futures and Foresight community? I imagine like many of the stories that you hear, <laughs> it was a very windy wind that all m- makes sense when you look backwards, but absolutely when you're yep. taking each step on the way, mm-hmm. it was really quite unclear where I was moving towards. So I think what's been really formative in my motivations and what I've chosen to do, I think, is the fact that my mum comes from Portugal and that my dad, his parents came from Ireland and also East End of London. And so this has kind of given me a real sense of interest in adventure and always growing up, looking at things from very different perspectives. One of the most clear memories I have was in the 80s when with the IRA bombing in the UK and there was a very strong narrative in the UK about those events and then you heard a very very different perspective from the Irish community and also the Portuguese community so I think that both gave me the traveling bug and the kind of inquisitiveness bug of like how do things look like from different people's perspectives so I basically just like went wondering I spent some time in a Chateau de Vin in Bordeaux, Mm-mm, that was extremely formative when yes. I was about 17. <laughs> I spent time in West Africa, living in Senegal for a year and all over really, crossing the Sahara by public transport, going through Central Asia by train. I studied at university and I was lucky in the very early 90s, just after the Berlin Wall came down, to do an international relations and politics course that was about global security. Now, I think that was like 10 years before pretty much other causes caught up with the fact that we need to think about security issues and well-being in a holistic, global and systemic way. So I feel phenomenally privileged that this was a, a bit of a random course that was just available for three or four years before the funding stopped. But that's how life happens is that, you know, you're lucky sometimes to be in at these moments for propinquity, really. And then you just use that as a platform. I could tell you a little bit about working for Procter & Gamble, because after working in Senegal, I was like, 
I'm in West Africa. I'm on the edge of the Sahara in this beautiful place called Saint Louis. I'm running a bar restaurant at night where you're seeing the president's son-in-law and the minister of the economy and all these development people. But then also during the day, I was volunteering in a food security project with some of the kind of poorest in the community. And it's just like, why is it that there's so much development aid that's been sent out here over the past 50 years with no impact? And yet Israeli and Lebanese businessmen who are actually making amazing agricultural fields, you know, productivity out of the Sahara with drip irrigation. And yet they can't export their tomatoes and green beans into Europe because of sanitary and phytosanitary barriers. So again, it's this whole kind of thing of like, if you're interested in issues around social justice, of innovation, of growth, then like, let's get to the kind of systemic heart of what's going on rather than putting a sticking plaster on top of it. But if you're going to do that, you need to kind of work across the business and civil society and government. So that was quite an informative insight. And so ended up getting my three to four years of experience in Procter & Gamble because I wanted to know what business is like and then ended up um, uh, having the privilege of working in government, which was fascinating too. So it was that kind of appetite to itchy feet but also appetite to look at the the spaces between these communities and what happens, like the different languages that business uses versus government and see what happens when you can bring those uh, actors together that really motivated me. So now I'm actually on a nomadic year. I've decided to get dusty feet again and to go traveling um, around in 2022. So you're speaking to me here in London, but I hope to be in Buenos Aires, back in Senegal, and also in Australia at some point. So I do Excellent. Hope that we get to meet. Were you in the UK government at the time of the UK Foresight Project? Absolutely. And actually, that's why I set up the School of International Futures, was that there was a huge interest internationally in the UK government experience, which I think that the magic of the UK story, and I've written an interesting history trying to compile the kind of 25-year history of foresight in the UK government just tracking the institutional innovations and the developments I think the magic that happened under TB was basically that he set up the strategy unit system as well as investing in foresight so what you had was then a, a strategy community strategy units in each of the departments connected into senior decision makers who both, yes, worked on short-term issues, unlocking questions, bringing thought leadership and and data to bear on some of the crunchier challenges, but actually also were there as almost the docking point for foresight work. And I think that was incredibly valuable. I think the other thing that really worked under TB was that he got that As a leader, he both had to create the space for long-term thinking and contrarian thinking, and he got it, and he was prepared to build a set of institutional capabilities around it, but also knew that himself as a politician would be under pressure to then ignore it. So he then created these kind of like Chinese walls internally to ensure that you could actually create an ecosystem that really supported under pressure decision makers to have that kind of information. Now, it was far from perfect, don't get me wrong. And there was lots that could have um, been improved on it. But in terms of direction of travel, it was 
a really interesting, good example of a, a future prepared ecosystem within a government. And the shocking thing for me when I left in 2010 was how easily uprooted it was. Having said that, lots of culture and institutional memory remained, which then could then be picked up uh, a few years later, which is, I think, to the advantage of the UK. But yes, it is remarkably interesting how quickly a civil service can respond to the incentives of leaders, including often when the pendulum swings to the right and uh, right-wing governments, as you saw in Australia and in Canada, etc., they don't want civil servants to really have that capability to look beyond the term of office because from that results in bigger government and thinking about the longer term actually challenges their ministerial and political views on the fact that they own strategy. So I will stop it there because I can very, very no, no, quickly okay. get we'll on to what is a soapbox. I'm sure, but, I'm sure um, we'll come back. I was back. there at that time and it was a very formative experience indeed. So after you then had that quite remarkable institutional and cultural and leadership experience of foresight at the highest level, then where did you go? I mean, that's a great question and one that I pondered on long and hard (laughs) when I left government in July 2010 and decided to take a train trip through Russia, through Kazakhstan, all the way through to Urumqi in China and Almaty, and then travelled through uh, a lot of... Uzbekistan, where I then got arrested uh, on the border with Turkmenistan on the northern border, which, by the way, is probably one of the uh, borders that you really don't want to get arrested on. I think North, South Korea would probably be bad. Burundi, Rwanda, also bad. Turkmenistan, North Uzbekistan, Karakal, Pakistan is what it's called. It's the bit of Uzbekistan that is actually nomadic in nature. It's not like the sedentary rest of the Uzbeks. They are horsemen. It's the bit of Uzbekistan that produces all the cotton with often child labour. And also it's where the Aral Sea is and this huge kind of desertification and aridization of, of that land, often because of the cotton crops. So I ended up for various reasons, which I won't go into, but it was a little interesting, under house arrest for six weeks. So I had long and hard to ponder that question. Of <laughs> what the hell do I do now after doing what was basically the most amazing job? Because after being at the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit, I then was privileged to be two years under David Miliband at the Foreign Office Policy Planning Staff. Wow. So then applying futures approaches and translating futures into impact in the here and there, but on foreign policy issues, whether it was the Arctic, what happens when the Arctic melts and the geopolitical consequences of it, as well as the trade consequences, all sorts of issues around. Yeah, it was anyway, loads of fun. And after applying to a few jobs, I was like, God damn it, I'm going to have to set up an organisation because that's the only way that we can carry on doing something that exciting and innovative. And at that point, I thought that there would be huge amounts of interest. I remembered being in government and people around the world, different governments were coming along saying, please tell us about this experience that you've had in the UK government. I was like, okay, let's do a business model around that. Let's help disseminate what good institutionalizing of foresight practice looks like. What are some of the governance, the connections into the policymaking process? How do you talk to senior ministers and civil servants so they can connect it and to the business of public service, which is so important, and what are some of the kind of processes and and, and structures 
uh, mechanisms and, and connections between Parliament and the au- supreme audit bodies and universities that are the, the features of thick and effective foresight ecosystems. So that's what I thought we were going to do. Plus, you know, something that we're really good at is not so much, there's excellent supply of insight about the future. And what I saw in government was that the problem of using foresight, it's not a supply side issue, it's a demand side issue. It's like, how do you get senior decision makers to understand what that means in a very busy environment, as well as the kind of institutional context? And I think that also goes, by the way, for communities, because I think... It's communities and senior decision makers that really need to, I think, if we're going to address the challenges of representative democracy and actually make it fit for purpose in the way that Alvin Toffler and many other great thinkers, including Professor Jim Data, have been talking about around an anticipatory democracy fit for the 21st century, then foresight absolutely has to be a critical part of that, both amongst incumbent decision makers, but also amongst the communities who can then explore their own futures and co-create them. So that's what I was particularly interested in. And I set up the organisation with uh, a counterpart who was in Government Office of Science. And we were like, yeah, global financial crisis. Everybody's talking about building back better. There is no official future. We need to do things differently. And it's really important to have different scenarios. And what actually happened, there was a wholesale cutting of long-term thinking capability across all organizations private and public and also there was a wholesale redistribution from the poor to the rich which is a classic way of setting yourself up as ian m banks said in his final interview before he died with the guardian which is worth a read so i think in 2014 he was like by dying i'm not sad to miss the 10 years of proto-fascism that we have set up for ourselves as a result of how we've decided to respond to the global financial crisis. Anyway, so there is where we thought we were going to be. And it's actually in really interestingly taken 10 years for us to actually get to that point again. So I see a lot of similarities in the narrative and the pendulum swing interest again outside the futures community in strategic foresight, which is all to the good. But having been through a few pendulum swings again, as I imagine you have as well, Peter, I'm like, there is much a slip between yes. the cup and the lip, as they say. And so uh, we cannot absolutely say job done. We absolutely need to ensure that at the heart of foresight is that it is about challenging power and it's about voice and it's about agency all those things that big institutions don't really like to engage with, um, the, the transformative power of foresight is still held and, and held true to. And so I am very optimistic vis-a-vis 10, 12 years ago, not for good reasons, but because we've got a, a, a Generation Z of voters who are like, you know, yeah. bugger this. You know, what interest have I got in the institutions around me in my entire formative years since I was 10 that it's been a moment of austerity and poor options. So I do think that Generation Z and then Generation Alpha behind them are going to be key to driving the transformative potential of the insights that foresight activities can provide us. We'll move on because that's because I'm sure we're going to loop around these a number of times. So I'm happy to end question one there. So thanks. Thanks, Kat.
So second question is I encourage the guests to explain to the listeners a framework or a philosophy or an approach that is central to how Kat does her work and how it is a central part of who you are and how you do this work. So what would you like to talk about? I would like to talk about the journey of discovery that we as an organisation has been on over the past four years that I've only really probably has come to the fore in terms of talking about it over the past six months, which is that we think that the network weaving field and the futures and foresight field have got, when brought together, Mm -hmm. have the potential for transformation and change. And I'd like to talk about that experience of bringing those two fields together. Go for it. Okay, so we were introduced to network weaving, which is effectively a way of thinking about non-hierarchical, non-hub-and-spoke approach to weaving different actors for social impact together. And I think the field is very quickly growing. It's really emerged only over the last 10 years, but it's basically about coalition building when you have a series of very different types of social actors, public, private, and especially civil society, who are trying to achieve a goal together, whether it's addressing climate emissions, whether it's trying to get children to read in your community. There's a common purpose and people are doing it out of motivation and passion and the desire to change the world, not because they're incentivized by command and control, Mm. um, key performance indicators or or traditional kind of financial uh, incentives. So that's an incredibly rich field, actually. I encourage the listeners to read Converge, uh, their books on weaving for social impact. There's a great Stanford Innovation Review short article about the five C's. You need to build common purpose, collaboration, understand what people are doing, and, and then weaving, supporting people together. And it's about enabling the potential of that, that community to kind of create change. Now, if you then map that, but the issue is, is that it's still kind of quite a static view Hmm. longitudinally of how change happens or it's very much about organizations working together to create change now if you then lay that on top of futures and foresight in particular the three horizons model then you're like wow you're suddenly lifting a two-dimensional view of actors into a three-dimensional space and you're beginning to understand the dynamics and you're taking network weaving and surfing it on the waves of the, the different horizons. And that's so exciting because mm. basically there's different things that are happening. Firstly, it's your role as a network weaver is about nudging dynamics that are already in place, yeah? And helping yep. people understand within that community what's going on. And in particular, the power dynamics, right? So you end up, and I think this is the key thing that's been really amazing is that you end up having a language to talk about power and incumbency and the role that different actors have in the network in a way that's really kind and loving and giving 
of everybody there. So for example, what we, I think, are doing is when we, we work on things like the future of human rights with open society, or we'd be doing some stuff on like how the humanitarian sector is changing, or we're doing a lot actually with the counter-proliferation, the counter-nuclear guys. And so what we see is that the kind of people, and, and often this is philanthropists and foundations as well, you'll have incumbents in the field who are like early adopters, and they're effectively bringing these two fields together okay what you can do is create coalitions of change of legitimate disruption and change in a community in a sector where you're working with the early adopters in the incumbent horizon one organizations and helping them connect and understand to the voices in horizon three and to start operating in horizon two together in particular i think what it also does is it futures work really supports and empowers the authority of Horizon 3 actors vis-a-vis Horizon 1 actors who otherwise are like, who are you, where do you come from, and why is what you've got to say relevant? So it's just really, really exciting. It's good. I'm hearing, obviously, complex dynamics there about learning from emerging systems rather than trying to understand them because Horizon 1 is a dynamic and you can't really understand it. You can learn from it. You can listen and watch and talk about it, but it's moving and it, it's not waiting for you. And Horizon 3 is interesting, I found, Cat, because to me, again, in my experience, it often was elites. It was often people with power who were, who were attracted by three to get away from one where all the problems were. They could almost jump to three and say, oh, It'll be better when X. We just need that in the future. And often there was no connect between the reality of people on the ground dealing with problems now, which were generally problems of not having power and having the elites talk about how the future was going to be, whether this magic high tech, high whatever kind of future. And again, I'm hearing in it is this kind of bridging process where you actually... Because often power is in Horizon 3 and often the powerless or the deemed powerless are in Horizon 1. Well, that's really interesting. Asking Horizon 1 actors to fill in a Horizon 3 graph is still a Horizon 1 activity. Genuine Horizon 3 insights I don't think can come from incumbents. No. So the question is more for me, it's like how do you kindly put Horizon 1 leaders in their box? which is very, I don't mean that in a rude way, but it's just like help them understand that even when they're talking about a 2030 time horizon or 2100 time horizon, they may be talking about the future, but they're talking about a colonized future of the present. So the question is then, how do you work with Horizon One actors and leaders to help them realize that actually they can mandate and support and finance this process and put their organizational authority behind the changes that the the process will come up with. But actually, coloring in the bloody dots or what it looks like is they can be a participant, but boy, do they need to be a participant whose role is mainly to listen, not to to contribute. And then what does it mean to be a leader and and lead an organizational transformation process into a, a future where your power base is not supported is a really really challenging thing um but when I I was reflecting on your question as well the the other 
framework or philosophy that I use, or perhaps it's the metaphor, perhaps it actually even picks up on your final question around how you talk about futures, that, that you can either see the future as a kind of shiny ball, which is there to kind of be objectively examined from different sides and using calipers to, to, to measure it and describe it, and you can be effectively wrong or right about it. Or you can see futures as a mirror where it's your opportunity to polish it and look around the peripheries and see your reflections from different perspectives and have truth spoken to power. And for me, the work that we do, because we are big fans of Betty Sue Flowers, who says that as many great futurists do, that the the future is a story that we tell ourselves in the present. And so in that situation, the act of a future's work is to disrupt the present, as uh, Gaston Boerger says, and it is an, an, an act of voice and agency and challenge, and it's a subversive activity. And that's where we would squarely put our own practice in. Yes, often we see, particularly the young people, are asked to be carriers of older people's ideas rather than actually getting the chance to talk about the things they want in the future. Correct. So we wrestle with that a lot with the Next Generation Foresight Practitioners Network. We have a sensing network of about 500 young, we call them futures-inspired change makers because they don't necessarily use futures vocabulary or the tools and the techniques as developed in what is quite a Western uh, and academic and Anglo-Saxon tradition. but. They do the component bits that we would recognize, which is thinking systemically, alternative views, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is an amazing network. And and the question is, lots of people are interested in engaging and hearing what they've got to say. But our role as, as the convener or the weaver of the network is also like, it's to balance out that when you're working with the network, are they working on issues that they really care about or being consulted on by Horizon One actors who are really interested mm. in what they've got to say, which is you know, also important. But actually, what we always try to do and think through is what are the vehicles of change, whether it's kind of seed funding, the impact fund that we've just innovated with, or whether it's the podcast, which I am totally going to come back to you and ask for your advice on. <laughs> where are the spaces where their voice is allowed to kind of shine through clearly rather than their opinions on issues that current people think are important. Thanks, Kat. So, Kat, third question where I talk to Kat Tully, I'll get you to put down your expertise and role and just talk about the futures that Kat Tully is sensitive to as they emerge, the ones that excite you, the ones that possibly even concern you, but the futures that are emerging that energise you either to move towards them or to actually want to resist them. But what's happening around you? Oh, this is such a difficult one to answer. I'm going to give you a little bit of a smorgasbord and keep it brief because otherwise, as you can tell, I talk behind like off a donkey. And this is from travels and conversations because I should probably have started off by saying I don't consider myself a futurist at all. I'm good at that translation. What I do is I I listen out to signals that, that come from much better and much more interesting people than me. So when I'm sharing all of this, I'd like to pay attribution to all the many people (laughs) whose time I've uh, spent chatting. I think there's something very interesting about the role of rural futures. 
especially we, we hear this in from some of our Indian foresight colleagues and also across the African continent, that there's a lot of urban futures being discussed. Yeah. But the, the the quality of a kind of sustainable livelihood and village life and community life in rural spaces is underexplored in particular across the continent of Africa uh, and India. Just because I've just come from the 20th anniversary nuclear threat initiative dinner in DC last week, I will also say that I think there's something really interesting about proliferation and futures. I think that yield was partly at least established by Herman Kahn and his multiple sensing and modelling of the doomsday scenario at the end of the world and and identify as Jerome Glenn, who I then had the privilege of chatting to recently, who's a good friend and who worked with Kahn. It's about kind of identifying what are the things that you don't know. And it feels as if after a very significant period from the 60s to the late 80s, where this was a very present reality of life globally, whether concerns about nuclear proliferation and in particular bio-proliferation, biosecurity hazards will potentially be on the rise. I think there's something about that global security fears are on the rise. We have been very privileged in Europe and in the US to also have had a period of relative conflict-free decades, even though this is absolutely not the experience of people globally. Um, need to look at Congo, obviously Ethiopia at the moment, etc. But these regional conflicts have affected millions. But I think there is something about the world getting used to a world of global security threats and, and the associated required thinking around multilateral governance that I think is going to be really interesting and keeps me a bit awake at night. And then I think... We've been working a lot on intergenerational fairness. And what I'm seeing around me is when the Facebook revolution, and I'm for your listeners uh, using heavy finger quotes when I use that term, <laughs> happened in Egypt, it, it kind of felt that democracy comes to a, a crossroads mm. because representative democracy was not really going to be fit for purpose to address the kind of challenges that we're going to face in the 21st century. And I think that the past decades has just shown that. And so we've been looking at questions of intergenerational fairness and intergenerational dialogue. And we've got big costs that we've got to invest to do digital and environmental transitions as countries to prepare for the kind of future and to ensure that we actually have uh, a future for this planet. And the big question is, can we get the politics right to make those investments now in time in the right direction? And the big question is, the challenge is, our political systems in the West have singularly (laughs) demonstrated that they are not really delivering the political leaders that are able to lead that process so political leadership has to come from somewhere else and i think processes of building 
public consensus for how we share the burdens of those transitions, what's fair between different generations, and if it's the right thing to do. That's the business of politics over the next five to 10 years, right? So these intergenerational fairness dialogues, discussions, institutions, public policy processes, and political leaders that can lead those processes is, I think, the big, big question. And I think by doing that, because not doing that, we're just letting ourselves be totally open to populist playbooks, right? They just send so dissent between generations, between urban and rural, between you know men and women, between rich and poor otherwise, because it's really easy to do. But that whole space for collective intergenerational discussion with space for unborn generations as well to have a role in that conversation is really really critical and I think there is appetite for that you've got the UN's um, secretary general has committed to a special envoy for future generations whose role will be to do that we have been working a lot in Portugal and the Portuguese president has just said that he's going to be the intergenerational champion that he sees his role as representing future citizens as well as present citizens. And he's getting his staff because he has a role to scrutinise legislation that comes from the government. And so he wants his staff, who does that scrutiny, to incorporate intergenerational fairness assessment that we've been working on into that process. So I think that there's causes for you know positive optimism. This whole issue around the future of democracy, how we distribute the costs of the radical transitions that we've got ahead and do so in a way that understands time and generations, I think is going to be a very, very, very important skill and thing to do over the coming decade. Yeah, it's interesting, Kat. I'm a student of history, particularly English history, and when I studied at university, I studied the Victorian England and particularly the political reforms of Gladstone and Disraeli. And it was interesting that at a time when their political system was falling apart, and Disraeli was a conservative, but he championed the franchise change to actually let people who didn't own property actually vote. And following on from that, of course, in the next sort of wave, we saw then the female vote arrive via suffragette. And again, one of the observations I make of the crisis of political systems is, are we going to see another change to the franchise to allow younger people to actually vote because there's often a lot of thinking that the 18 to 21 voting age is is somehow set in concrete and yet history tells us that political people often surprising political people have opened up the franchise and the franchise can energize and change the nature of politics absolutely i couldn't agree more I think David Runciman came out with a proposal for six years up time, like, brilliant. Yep. Go for it. I think what we saw pre-COVID where the younger people just started to take political action and go in the streets because, as you say, they they don't see any representation in the current political system Uh and the current political Uh ideas Uh given that they're going to live in that future. And so we saw the politicisation of the 13, 14, 15-year-olds. It was amazing in Australia, you might know that in Australia we have a conservative government, of course, and so when the kids walked out of schools on Fridays to protest and the parents cheered them and the school teachers cheered them and the politician's answer was get back in the classroom and learn something. And these people are going to be voting in two years' time. And, in fact, they're going to be voting now. They're going to be voting in our election, which is about four weeks away. Fantastic. 
Yeah, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for you. I think it's what you said I'm going to say. There has to be a subversive element to this. We actually have to take the horizon one and to some extent parts of it will not go into the future and they have to be stopped because the future can't emerge the way it has to in horizon three if certain things are holding it back. Well, let's take a very like a black and white example. So you have a current horizon one that's based on hydrocarbon Uh, economy. Now, there are some actors in Horizon 1, like the early adopters or the people who are willing to move, you're going to basically have the dregs, and I use that (laughs) appropriately, left behind, including some actors who are pretty much prepared to act as blockers Hmm. and potentially prepared to use quite nefarious tools in order to to do so. And, And they may be countries, but they may be kind of actors who are very much insulated, private sector actors who are insulated from the market, they're not publicly listed, they're based in countries where it's very difficult to access them legally, etc. You need to be a little bit kind of hard-nosed about, it's about helping that future emerge. Hmm. But as you say, there's, there's potentially a side which is going, and what do you do with the current Horizon One actors who are going to block that and what yeah. them? And, and we're talking about survival now, so there's got serious measures that are going to have to be yep. taken in terms of counter operations and intelligence and surveillance and all, you know, this kind of stuff might, might, might be necessary. And again, I think back to your point, there are the actors who have power. So these can often be some of the investors and some of the political figures that are invested in it. But there actually are, to use your other idea, there are the people sitting in the rural places where these resources lie. They're relatively powerless. They're almost collateral damage in this future. Correct. And it's giving them a voice because it's almost like they're talked over. These are the people that are going to lose jobs, livelihoods, everything else, and they're not part of the conversation other than to be turned into caricatures of ignorant, yokel, rural people who actually have as much entitlement to talk about the future they want for themselves and their kids as the people in the cities do. Yeah, yeah. And are invisible unless they're weaponised by one side or another. Absolutely. The UN Secretary General has committed to these national listening dialogues. And I I fundamentally believe if we're going to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals, which is a positive vision for the future of this planet, and you've got multiple countries who do national planning exercises that used to be five-year plans, but now are... Um, about achieving the SDGs, those plans cannot be developed as business as usual, like the same old Mm. actors in the room, because you're not going to get, just because you're like stretching out to 10 years rather than five years, you're not going to get the transformative innovation ideas that achieving the SDGs need. For me, it's absolutely, you know, critical that you harness the insights and the energy and the ideas of communities in countries in order to achieve those outcomes. And so that's a kind of quite nice thing to say, but it's quite difficult to do. Mm. But at the heart, getting governments to help really understand what co-creation and national dialogues. So taking citizens' assemblies, but integrating foresight approaches to it so the conversations aren't just about historic and present factors but actually about dynamic and 
expert informed but still citizen deliberated questions around trade-offs and insights and preferences that has to be the future of kind of policy making and what that looks like at both the national level and the community level anything that we can do to support those kind of endeavors that are being done by some of our next generation foresight practitioners around the world is really important. So we've done this national strategy for next generations pilot in the UK, which is taking the integrated review, which is the only place where the UK government does long term thinking across the different departments. You know, what's the global environment within which the UK is supposed to prosper in the next 10 to 15 years? Those kind of exercises absolutely need to be prized open. And public views, deep public views and engagement part of that but in a way where their insights are taken seriously thanks Kat fourth question is the communication question so how do you explain what Cat Tully does to someone who doesn't understand what Cat Tully does so I do it really badly. <laughs> I normally try to get a kind of like a kind of conversational dipstick and go, ah, it's going okay. Are they looking at me as if I'm totally mad? And shall I try and reverse and try and enter this in a totally different <laughs> angle? Um, yes. Often what that means is that I throw everything like at the wall and hope that something sticks. <laughs> something as sticks. Well, which yes. is a terribly bad way of communicating. Um, so blah, blah, blah. What we try to not do is use the word foresight. Yep. Okay. So we sometimes say that we're not-for-profit collective of practitioners working on policy planning and strategy for future generations. Yep. Okay, so that's one way. Sometimes I just say an interest in using the concept of the future to create transformation today. Um, and sometimes I say, as an organization, we are organized in practices, actually, at the School of International Futures, and each practice is taking one lens on the issue of why is it so difficult now to make decisions that are good for tomorrow and tomorrow's citizens as well as today's citizens. And each of our practices is trying to take an angle at that problem. So one angle, which is the next generation foresight practitioners, is that there's a community capability that is critical for the 21st century because a community coming together to, to co-create and design and think about their futures is a deeply political act. If we think that's really important, then we need a foresight community and army of people who are able to do tools and techniques and approaches that are connected to people's lived experience from 8.5 billion people in 2050 around the world. So it needs to connect to the metaphors and the language and the ways of seeing time, which can be cyclical or linear or different. So we need diversification of, uh, of foresight approaches and uh, of tools. So that's what NGFP does. Our learning and transformation practice basically helps build foresight capability in organizations and individuals and systems. And then our intergenerational fairness observatory basically helps us hold decision makers to account for their long-term impacts of their decisions today. So depending on that, then I kind of slice and dice, but it's just really difficult. And I'd be very, very keen to learn 
from your other interviews and also listeners on, on what works for them? The fourth question is an interesting one to sit here and ask it over 140 times and listen to the answers because, again, everyone's listening to the answers, trying to pinch something. One of the things I did here in yours, which I just want to acknowledge, is one of the things about the future and futures thinking and making decisions is giving it a moral component. And to me, the future generation focus that you have is a way to land the moral aspect of whose future are we talking about and do they get a say? It's actually taking it from this technical solution where we're trying to solve something that's not known and we're not flipping it into a moral dilemma, but we are posing the dilemma that the people who are going to see what the future turns out, see whether your policy works or doesn't work, aren't here present at the table to give input to the policy. And and that's the dilemma that should be at the front of all policymakers is how do we ensure that we're making decisions that actually give some consideration to the future rather than zero? Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. And it's a really nice, simple two-worded backdoor to make real what does it mean to embrace uncertainty? Because we can use these terms and then people are like, yes, 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 I'm I'm embracing uncertainty. Watch me embrace uncertainty. (laughs) And it's just like, no, that that means that it is unknowable what the preferences of future generations are. Therefore, back to the kind of intergenerational principle uh, and the Rawlsian principle and Brundtland principle and around trying to do no harm and limiting uh, and trying to... Stop yourself from limiting the freedom is a really powerful kind of concept because yeah. it's like fairness. People connect to that. So I think the German Constitutional Court ruling in April last year is a really, really powerful one. And I think it's a kind of it's a straw in the wind where I can imagine a lot of that's going to drive a lot of the sustainability finance to yeah. move quickly, I think, in yeah. the green transition. And I think it's also going to accelerate a real appetite for building new kind of institutions to be aware of future generations. And that makes me very happy. And perhaps I'm just optimistic, but at least I prefer to kind of approach the future in an optimistic way, I think. Yeah. It is interesting when judges are often more courageous and more revolutionary than political figures. In Australia, we had a famous land right decision called the Mabo Judgment that actually wiped out Terra Nullis. And that was well ahead of any politician who wanted to do it or anything else. But the judges effectively pushed Australia kicking and screaming into the 21st century. So my instinct is that judges can often tap into the best of us because they are concerned about legacy and they are concerned about decades into the future. The issue is not that the politicians don't see it. They do see it. They'd love to be able to do it. But the constraints around them and the pressures are impossible. So let's try and give them a little bit more space to do the right thing, I think, is my approach often with politicians. Hear, hear, Kat. So at the last question, Kat, what do you want to finish with? Okay. I would love to uh, pose a question to your listeners and to ask your opinion collectively about the value of the intergenerational fairness principle 
how it might connect into your personal work, how you see intergenerational fairness dynamics playing out in your communities and the topics that you work on, and if an intergenerational fairness assessment framework might help you, because we are very keen to set up a community uh, of people who are in different parts of the world and in different sectors, using that framework to start opening up conversations about the future. And we'd love to hear from you and learn a little bit from the experiences that you're going through and to see whether the intergenerational fairness assessment framework might help. If so, it's on our website. So that's www.soif.org.uk. We'll put all those links on the show notes, as well as if you want to create a link for people to respond directly to you. Um, We'll also add that there as well. Not me to respond, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Um, I would. Again, I have noticed that the intergenerational has never gone away, but I certainly through the COVID times have detected through my interviews that I see more and more practitioners, educators responding to it as an opportunity and seeing it as a way to get better quality outcomes, let them be educational outcomes, societal outcomes. So I think there's something the zeitgeist says, there is certainly something in this intergenerational equity question. The revolutionary that I am, given that I think futures by its nature is subversive, I think why I think it's essential to consider intergenerations is that it goes to the core of who has power and who doesn't. Because in Horizon 1, we know who has power and we know who doesn't have power. But if you've actually posed it as equity, then posing a group that are powerless in the present but need to be empowered in the future, to me, shows a path that, as you said, gives us a chance to be better than we have been. It actually, it doesn't tell us how to do it, but it lays out clearly that it somehow has to be done. And that gap between what is and what needs to be for people who lean into it, I think it's essential to make the future real is that this has to address equity because the future can't be better if we haven't dealt with equity. If I can have two more follow-up questions, one just on this one. What topic, either in your community or your country or community writ large, do you think that it would be most transformative to apply this lens to? Whether it's educational, whether it's like, you know, constructing something down the end of your road or, you know. I think, again, in Australia, I mean, as you said, Australia's political system is captured by fossil fuel, but the reality of people living in communities is we had the worst bushfires we'd ever had pre-COVID and now we've just come off the worst floods post-COVID. To me, using the notion of the future of place In other words, where do you want to live? Where do you want your children to be living? Australia, like many places, we're caught between these massive, massive cities that are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more unlivable and this romantic notion of the bush. But the bush is where bushfires happen and the bush is where floods happen. And so to me, the reality of climate and the absolute fairness and unfairness 
of the people who live in the regions are often there for economic reasons, not <laughs> lifestyle reasons. But you know, to me, the inequality of climate, the inequality of climate impacts, to me, it all comes to this rich consequence of who's causing it, who's benefiting from it, and who's losing from it. For me, the notion of where we live and how we want to live is such a rich place to have that dialogue where people talk across and people talk about the past that they want to live where their their parents lived and their parents' parents lived and they'd like it if their kids had the chance. And then, of course, the kids <laughs> hearing that but also saying, but what do I want? That cuts through all the political conversation because people know the climate is getting worse and worse and worse and it's the same in most countries of the world. So that, to me, is, a, it to me is the richest uh, darkest place to go, but to me, it's also the most powerful place to go. I love it. Like foresight is as political, like the front line of political activism in the 2020s. That sounds like a very appealing strap line for a profession. We should do that. Um, <laughs> so final question for me is what in my conversation with you stood out as being most different or went ping, you know, when something really kind of like resonates or captures many things cat but the one that i probably did strike me and again it's great to hear it is you have a compassion for people in political roles that often they are pilloried and characterized as being fools or corrupt or whatever and yet you said a number of times that these are people trying to do their best, but they're in an impossible situation. And it's impossible both in terms of the task they face, but it's also impossible in terms of the expectations of what people have of them. And the media turned into a blood sport. The political systems are adversarial. And yet we know politicians around the world, these problems require parties to come together if we're going to tackle these long-term Issues And yet bipartisanship is really hard to find. And you remind me of the fact that we need to cultivate bipartisanship in how we think our way through this, both at the community level, certainly, and also at the generational level, but also at the political level. Nice. That was, that was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. So, Kat, look, it's been an absolute blast. I finally got to talk to you after uh, hearing about you and talking to some of your young voices that you sponsor. But look, on behalf of the FuturePod community, thanks for taking some time out. Thanks for your passion and commitment to future generations. And I wish you another successful 10 years at least at the school. Very exciting one. Thank you very much, Peter. And welcome anybody to reach out and get in touch if they want. Always lovely to chat. Take care. Thank you for the invitation. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.